Chapter Three of the Complete Works of Artemus Ward, Part Four, to California and Return. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Great Salt Lake City. How was I to be greeted by the Mormons? That was rather an exciting question with me. I had been told on the plains that a certain humorous sketch of mine, written some years before, had greatly incensed the saints, and a copy of the Sacramento Union newspaper had a few days before fallen into my hands, in which a Salt Lake correspondent quite clearly intimated that my reception at the New Zion might be unpleasantly warm. I ate my dinner moodily and sent out for some cigars. The venerable clerk brought me six. They cost only two dollars. They were procured at a store nearby. The Salt Lake House sells neither cigars nor liquors. I smoke in my room, having no heart to mingle with the people in the office. Dr. Hingston, thanks God he never wrote against the Mormons, and goes out in search of a brother Englishman, comes back at night, and says there is a prejudice against me, advises me to keep in, has heard that the Mormons thirst for my blood, and are on the lookout for me. Under these circumstances, I keep in. The next day is Sunday, and we go to the tabernacle in the morning. The tabernacle is located on Blank Street, and is a long rakish building of adobe capable of seating some 2,500 persons. There is a wide platform and a rather large pulpit at one end of the building, and at the other end is another platform for the choir. A young Irishman by the name of Sloan preaches a sensible sort of discourse, to which a Presbyterian could hardly have objected. Last night this same Mr. Sloan enacted a character in a rollicking Irish farce at the theatre, and he played it well, I was told. Not so well, of course, as the great Dan Bryant could, but I fancy he was more at home in the Mormon pulpit than Daniel would have been. The Mormons, by the way, are preeminently an amusement-loving people, and the elders pray for the success of their theater with as much earnestness as they pray for anything else. The congregation doesn't startle us. It is known, I fancy, that the heads of the church are to be absent today, and the attendance is slim. There are no ravishingly beautiful women present, and no positively ugly ones. The men are fair to middling. They will never be slain in cold blood for their beauty, nor shut up in jail for their homeliness. There are some good voices in the choir today, but the orchestral accompaniment is unusually slight. Sometimes they introduce a full brass and string band in church. Brigham Young says the devil has monopolized the good music long enough, and it is high time the Lord had a portion of it. Therefore, trombones are tooted on Sundays in Utah, as well as on other days, and there are some splendid musicians there. The orchestra in Brigham Young's theater is quite equal to any in Broadway. There is a youth in Salt Lake City, I forget his name, who plays the cornet like a North American angel. Mr. Stenhouse relieves me of any anxiety I had felt in regard to having my swan-like throat cut by the Danites, 
but thinks my wholesale denunciation of a people I had never seen was rather hasty. The following is the paragraph to which the saints objected. It occurs in an Artemis Ward paper on Brigham Young, written some years ago. I girded up my lions and fled the scene. I packed up my duds and left Salt Lake, which is a second Sodom and Gomorrah, inhabited by as thieven and unprincipled a set of wretches as ever drew breath in any spot on the globe. I had forgotten all about this, and as Elder Stenhouse read it to me, my feelings may be better imagined than described, to use language I think I have heard before. I pleaded, however, that it was a purely burlesque sketch, and that this strong paragraph should not be interpreted literally at all. Well, the Elder didn't seem to see it in that light, but we parted pleasantly. THE MOUNTAIN FEVER I go back to my hotel and go to bed, and I do not get up again for two weary weeks. I have the mountain fever, so-called in Utah, though it closely resembles the old-style typhus, and my case is pronounced dangerous. I don't regard it so. I don't, in fact, regard anything. I am all right myself. My poor Hingston shakes his head sadly, and... Dr. Williamson, from Camp Douglas, pours all kinds of bitter stuff down my throat. I drink his health in a dose of the cheerful beverage known as Jalap, and thresh the sheets with my hot hands. I address large assemblages who have somehow got into my room, and I charge Dr. Williamson with the murder of Luce, and Mr. Irwin, the actor, with the murder of Shakespeare. I have a lucid spell now and then, in, in one of which James Townsend, the landlord, enters. He whispers, but I hear what he says far too distinctly. This man can have anything and everything he wants, but I'm no hand for a sick room. I never could see anybody die. That was cheering, I thought. The noble Californian Jerome Davis, he of the celebrated ranch, sticks by me like a twin brother, although I fear that in my hot frenzy I more than once anathematized his kindly eyes. Nursers and watchers, Gentile and Mormon, volunteer their services in hoops, and rare wines are sent to me from all over the city, which, if I can't drink, the venerable and excellent Thomas can. Easy. I lay there in this wild, broiling way for nearly two weeks, when one morning I woke up with my head clear and an immense plaster on my stomach. The plaster had operated. I was so raw that I could by no means say to Dr. Williamson, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I wished he had laughed me before he plastered me. I was fearfully weak. I was frightfully thin. With either one of my legs you could have cleaned the stem of a meerschaum pipe. My backbone had the appearance of a clothesline with a quantity of English walnuts strung upon it. My face was almost gone. My nose was so sharp that I didn't dare stick it into other people's business for fear it would stay there. But by borrowing my agent's overcoat, I succeeded in producing a shadow. 
I have been looking at Zion all day, and my feet are sore, and my legs are weary. I go back to the Salt Lake House and have a talk with Landlord Townsend about the state of Maine. He came from that bleak region, having skinned his infantile eyes in York County. He was at Nauvoo, and was forced to sell his entire property there for fifty dollars. He has thrived in Utah, however, and is much thought of by the church. He is an elder, and preaches occasionally. He has only two wives. I hear lately that he has sold his property for $25,000 to Brigham Young, and gone to England to make converts. How impressive he may be as an expounder of the Mormon gospel, I don't know. His beefsteaks and chicken pies, however, were first-rate. James and I talk about Maine, and cordially agree that so far as pine boards and horse mackerel are concerned, it is equaled by few and excelled by none. There is no place like home, as Clara, the maid of Milan, very justly observes. And while J. Townsend would be unhappy in Maine, his heart evidently beats back there now and then. I heard the love of home oddly illustrated in Oregon one night in a country bar room. Some well-dressed men in a state of strong drink were boasting of their respective places of nativity. I, said one, was born in Mississippi, where the sun ever shines and the magnolias bloom all the happy year round. And I, said another, was born in Kentucky, Kentucky the home of impassioned oratory, the home of clay, the state of splendid women, of gallant men. And I, said another, was born in Virginia, the home of Washington, the birthplace of statesmen, the state of chivalric deeds and noble hospitality. And I, said a yellow-haired and sallow-faced man who was not of this party at all, and who had been quietly smoking a short black pipe by the fire during their magnificent conversation, and I was born in the garden spot of America. Where is that, they said. Scowhegan, Maine, he replied. Can I sell you a razor strop? I am here. There is no mistake about that, and there is a good prospect of my staying here for some time to come. The snow is deep on the ground, and more is falling. The doctor looks glum, and speaks of his ill-starred countrymen, of Sir J. Franklin, who went to the Arctic once too much. A good thing happened down here the other day, said a miner from New Hampshire to me. A man of Boston dressing went through there, and at one of the stations there wasn't any mules, says the man who was fixed out to kill in his Boston dressing. Where's the mules? Says the driver, them mules is into the sagebrush. You go catch em, that's what you do, says the man of Boston dressing. Oh, no, says the driver. Oh, yes, and he took his long coach whip and licked that man of Boston dressing till he went and caught them mules. How does that strike you for a joke? Well, it didn't strike me as much of a joke to pay $175 in gold fare and then be horsewhipped by stage drivers for declining to chase mules. But people's ideas of humor differ in regard to shrewdness, which reminds me of a little story. 
Sitting in a New England country store one day, I overheard the following dialogue between two brothers. "'Say, Bill, what you done with that air sorrel mare of yourn?' "'Solder,' said William, with a smile of satisfaction. "'What'd you get?' "'Hundred and fifty dollars cash down.' "'Show! Hundred and fifty for that kicking spavine critter. Who'd you sell her to?' "'Sold her to mother.' "'What?' exclaimed brother number one. "'Did you really sell that kicking spavine critter to mother? <laughs> "'Well, you air a shrewd one.' A sensation, a rival by the overland stage of two Missouri girls who had come unescorted all the way through. They are going to Nevada territory to join their father. They are pretty, but merciful heavens how they throw the meat and potatoes down their throats. This is the first square meal we've had since we left Rocky Thompson's, said the eldest. Then addressing herself to me, she said, Are you the literary man? I politely replied that I was one of them fellers. Well, don't make fun of our clothes in the papers. We are going right through in these here clothes. We're. We ain't going to rag out till we get to Nevada. Pass them sausages. Brigham Young. Brigham Young sends word I may see him tomorrow. So I go to bed singing the popular Mormon hymn, let the chorus still be sung, long live Brother Brigham Young, and blessed be the vale of Deseret, fret, fret, and blessed be the vale of Deseret. At two o'clock the next afternoon, Mr. Hiram B. Clausen, Brigham Young's son-in-law and chief business manager, calls for me with the prophet's private sleigh, and we start for that distinguished person's block. I am shown into the prophet's chief office. He comes forward, greets me cordially, and introduces me to several influential Mormons who are present. Brigham Young is sixty-two years old, of medium height, and with sandy hair and whiskers. An active iron man with a clear, sharp eye. A man of consummate shrewdness, of great executive ability. He was born in the state of Vermont, and so, by the way, was Heber C. Kimball, who will wear the Mormon belt when Brigham leaves the ring. Brigham Young is a man of great natural ability. If you ask me how pious is he, I treat it as a conundrum, and give it up. Personally, he treated me with marked kindness throughout my sojourn in Utah. His power in Utah is quite as absolute as that of any living sovereign, yet he uses it with such consummate shrewdness that his people are passionately devoted to him. He was an elder at the first formal Mormon stake in this country at Kirkland, Ohio, and went to Nauvoo with Joseph Smith. That distinguished Mormon handed his mantle and the profit business over to Brigham when he died at Nauvoo. Smith did a more flourishing business in the profit line than B.Y. does. Smith used to have his little revelation almost every day, sometimes two before dinner. B.Y. only takes one once in a while. The gateway of his block is surmounted by a brass American eagle, and they say, they say here means anti-Mormons, that he receives his spiritual dispatches through this piece of patriotic poultry. 
They also say that he receives revelations from a stuffed white calf that is trimmed with red ribbons and kept in an iron box. I don't suppose these things are true. Rumor says that when the Lion House was ready to be shingled, Brigham received a message from the Lord stating that the carpenters must all take hold and shingle it and not charge a red cent for their services. Such carpenters as refused to shingle would go to hell, and no postponement on account of the weather. They say that Brigham, whenever a train of emigrants arrives in Salt Lake City, orders all the women to march up and down before his block, while he stands on the portico of the Lion House and gobbles up the prettiest ones. He is an immensely wealthy man, his wealth is variously estimated at from ten to twenty millions of dollars. He owns sawmills, grist mills, woolen factories, brass and iron foundries, farms, brickyards, etc., and superintends them all in person. A man in Utah individually owns what he grows and makes, with the exception of a one-tenth part that must go to the church and Brigham Young, as the first president, is the church's treasurer. Gentiles, of course, say that he abuses this blind confidence of his people, and speculates with their money, and absorbs the interest if he doesn't the principal. The Mormons deny this, and say that whatever of their money he does use is for the good of the church, that he defrays the expenses of immigrants from far over the seas, that he is foremost in all local enterprises tending to develop the resources of the territory, and that, in short, he is incapable of wrong in any shape. Nobody seems to know how many wives Brigham Young has. Some set the number as high as eighty, in which case his children must be too numerous to mention. Each wife has a room to herself. These rooms are large and airy, and I suppose they are supplied with all the modern improvements. But never having been invited to visit them, I can't speak very definitely about this. When I left the prophet, he shook me cordially by the hand, and invited me to call again. This was flattering, because if he dislikes a man at the first interview, he never sees him again. He made no allusion to the letter I had written about his community, Outside guards were pacing up and down before the gateway, but they smiled upon me sweetly. The veranda was crowded with Gentile miners, who seemed to be surprised that I didn't return in a wooden overcoat, with my throat neatly laid open from ear to ear. I go to the theater tonight. The play is Othello. Now, this is a really fine play, and was a favorite of G. Washington, the father of his country. On this stage, as upon all stages, the good old conventionalities are strictly adhered to. The actors cross each other at oblique angles from L-U-E to R-I-E on the slightest provocation. Othello howls, Iago scowls, and the boys all laugh when Roderigo dies. I stay to see charming Mrs. Irwin, Desdemona, die, which she does very sweetly. I was an actor once myself. I supported Edwin Forrest at a theater in Philadelphia. I played a pantomimic part. I removed the chairs between scenes, and I did it so neatly that Mr. F. said I would make a cabinet-maker if I applied myself. 
the parquet of the theatre is occupied exclusively by the mormons and their wives and children they wouldn't let a gentile in there any more than they would a serpent in the side seats are those of president young's wives who go the play and a large and varied assortment of children it is an odd sight to see a jovial old mormon file down the parquet aisle with ten or twenty robust wives at his heels yet this spectacle may be witnessed every night the theatre is opened the dress circle is chiefly occupied by the officers from camp douglas and the gentile merchants the upper circles are filled by the private soldiers and mormon boys i feel bound to say that a mormon audience is quite as appreciative as any other kind of audience they prefer comedy to tragedy sentimental plays for obvious reasons are unpopular with them it will be remembered that when c melnot in the lady of lyons comes home from the wars he folds pauline to his heaving heart and makes several remarks of an impassioned and slobbering character one night when the lady of lyons was produced here an aged mormon arose and went out with his twenty-four wives angrily stating that he wouldn't sit and see a play where a man made such a cussed fuss over one woman the prices of the theatre are parquet seventy-five cents second and third upper circles twenty-five cents in an audience of two thousand persons and there are almost always that number present probably a thousand will pay in cash and the other thousand in grain and a variety of articles all of which will command money however brigham young usually sits in the middle of the parquet in a rocking chair and with his hat on he does not escort his wives to the theatre they go alone when the play drags he either falls into a tranquil sleep or walks out he wears in winter time a green wrapper and his hat in the style introduced into this country by lewis kossuth esq the liberator of hungaria i invested a dollar in the liberty of hungaria nearly fifteen years ago End of chapter 3